You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Just before I read, I'd like to begin just by asking a question. How do you feel about opposition? How do you feel particularly about opposition to your faith in Christ? If we were playing a game of word association with, uh, and, and I said evangelism or witness and then someone said opposition, what would you think to say next? What words immediately come to mind? Perhaps it would be a synonym, hostility, antagonism, mockery, persecution maybe. Perhaps you'd say a feeling that you imagine such opposition might engender in you. Fear or anxiety. Perhaps you might say something like failure, thinking that such opposition could only come from saying the wrong thing, from presenting the Christian message in some incorrect way or, or some in an unattractive manner, perhaps. Perhaps you'd say a word indicating where you imagine such opposition to arise from who it is you would imagine might be most likely to oppose you, perhaps secularism or the media or liberalism or whichever other Goliath looms particularly large in your view at the moment. And no doubt there are certain words that would almost certainly be completely absent from our minds as we considered that concept of opposition. person playing uh, word association who followed the word opposition with success or progress or faithfulness, they'll probably be disqualified from the game. The other player pronounced the winner. As we look today, however, at this story of Stephen the Martyr from Acts, let's see how in God's economy, opposition has what can seem the most surprising of connections, connections that hopefully will make us totally reevaluate how we consider it. So let's read. We're going to read all the way through from chapter 6, verse 8, through to chapter 8, verse 4. So hopefully that will be all right. Acts 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then uh, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. 
the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he had lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear 
and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They bought, brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. <coughs> Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Well, it's quite a story. And perhaps, if you're anything like me, you can feel a little bit confused, especially with Stephen's speech. Why so long and meandering about Israel's history? Why focus on the bits that he does and quote the prophetic writings? He does. What points is he trying to make? And why in verse 51 is he so suddenly, so very condemnatory of them? Well, let's see. Uh, It's worth setting the scene a bit. Stephen is first introduced a little earlier in Acts 6. Verse 5, he is the first named of the appointed deacons to ensure that the daily distribution of food among the believers was properly administered, that nobody was unduly forgotten or overlooked, especially some of the widows from among the Grecian Jews. That means it's extremely probable that Stephen himself was a Grecian Jew, a Jew who hadn't been living in Jerusalem, but more likely grew up somewhere further away and whose first language was Greek, unlike the Jews in Jerusalem who would have spoken Aramaic. Moreover, we know that Stephen was considered by other believers to be full of the spirit and wisdom. That was the criteria for being chosen as a deacon, according to verse 3. And indeed, our passage today begins with a reaffirmation, if you like, of Stephen's spiritual credentials. Verse 8 testifies that Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power who even performed great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen is, in fact, the first person named in Scripture after the apostles to be able to perform such signs. However, the issue at hand and the catalyst for how our story today proceeds is the rise in opposition. Verse 9 tells us it came from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, which again, based on the place names of verse 9, would suggest that this was a gathering place for diaspora Jews, i.e. these these Greek-speaking Jews not originally from Jerusalem. So Cyrene and Alexandria were in North Africa, Cilicia and Asia in what we call Turkey. And these Jews began arguing with Stephen. Such discussions were proving ultimately quite frustrating, undoubtedly, because verse 10, they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave Stephen as he spoke. It is frustrating, isn't it? Frustrating when you're arguing with someone and everything they say has that ring of sense and truth about it. Uh, And it seems impossible to refute. You're left in a tricky situation, aren't you? On the one hand, you can either concede defeat and change your mind, but then your pride is, is, is severely dented. And, of course, depending on what they're saying, you might have to change something. Or you dig your heels in. And, of course, that is exactly what these men did. And more than that, they were clearly so offended by Stephen that they decided to play dirty and provoke people's anger against him by twisting his words, the desired result being his eventual suppression. 
and it works, doesn't it? Before long, the people of the synagogue, including the elders and teachers of the law, verse 12, seize Stephen and bring him before the Sanhedrin. That is the supreme ecclesiastical court of the Jews in Jerusalem, and that was dominated by Sadducees at the time. There would have been a minimum of 23 in this council, but there were 70 in full, anywhere between those two numbers. In any case, Stephen is being brought before a large group, potentially intimidating, although it doesn't appear to have bothered him, mind you. In verse 15, Luke reports that all those priests sitting in the council saw that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel, presumably in the form of some appearance of light, uh, perhaps like that when Moses descended from Mount Sinai, we don't know. Of course, Stephen then proceeds to give his long speech, having begun, verse 2 of chapter 7, by issuing a bold imperative that they are to listen to him. It's important to understand what were the charges that were brought against Stephen, because that will help us understand his speech. Look carefully. Chapter 6, verse 11, the opposition say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses, and against God. So the charge is essentially blasphemy. But in what form? Well, words against Moses and against God. But what's meant by that? Well, the testimony of the false witnesses in verses 13 and 14 explain. This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. They've swapped the order, but that's essentially what they're referring to uh, with Moses and God. Essentially by Moses they're referring to the law, and by against God, they're referring to the temple. That's what they mean by this holy place. What exactly is Stephen supposed to have spoken against the law and the temple? Verse 14, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Stephen had no doubt repeated the words that Jesus himself said, which are recorded in John chapter 2. He declared, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Although John tells us actually Jesus was talking about his body. And no doubt Stephen will have explained that to his opponents. But that's of no consequence. They're twisting his words so as to suppress him. And as Stephen had no doubt been explaining how Christ fulfilled the law in various ways and what that meant for various things, not least the sacrificial system, they would have branded that as changing the customs Moses handed down to us. Now here's the point, all of this amounted to a serious challenge to the way in which Jewish religion ought to be conducted. Or to put it another way, to the Jews' understanding of how they ought to relate to Almighty God. It's a serious challenge. The questions at stake were, did God dwell in the temple at Jerusalem or not? Was true worship only possible at the temple in Jerusalem or not? Was the acceptability of worship based on keeping the law, especially in terms of temple sacrifices, or not? Now Stephen clearly answered in one way, his opponents the opposite. And so at the beginning of chapter 7, the high priest invites Stephen to defend himself. Now Stephen's speech is long, we're not going to go into it in all the details, but essentially it is a defense of the, the specific charges against him, the blasphemy against the law and the temple. And really what Stephen is trying to show throughout is that God is perfectly able to work out his purposes outside of Jerusalem, if he so chooses, because he's not contained in the temple. 
that true worship was not therefore the special preserve of Jerusalem or the temple, but in fact was always a foreshadow of the ultimate fulfillment. That the acceptability of worship therefore wasn't based on the keeping of every minutiae of the law, but actually on accepting the authority of the men sent by God and obeying their words. So Stephen begins with a focus on Abraham, highlighting first, verse 2, that even whilst Abraham was still in Mesopotamia, a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, God appeared to him. Stephen continues, he shows how God's words are not always fulfilled in the immediate and uh, obvious way. After all, God promised Abraham the land of Canaan and, in fact, gave him no inheritance there, promising Abraham it would actually only be fulfilled ultimately, or not even ultimately, but a long time in the future, 400 years later at least, to his descendants. He, he kind of skips over Isaac and Jacob, he gets straight onto Joseph, and he highlights in verse 9 the way in which, on the one hand, Joseph was rejected by his brothers, or the patriarchs, as Stephen calls them, therefore highlighting their significance to Israel, and yet, on the other hand, was chosen by God. Even in the land of Egypt, God was with Joseph and rescued him from his troubles and raised him to a place of influence and power, so that in the end, the patriarchs and Jacob all moved there. Stephen then moves on to Moses, the great prophet and leader of Israel who delivered them and brought them God's law. And yet he was one who was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. God works in mysterious ways, raising up leaders for himself from the most unlikely of places. And after a little more commentary on Moses' life, uh, Stephen interrupts his own flow with a couple of comments that are instructive. Firstly, verse 35 this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge. He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. Stephen highlights the irony that the man rejected by the Israelites was one sent by God himself to rule and deliver them, which of course he did. Second comment, verse 37, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Stephen, quoting Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, clearly alludes to Jesus here, although he refrains from making that absolutely explicit. In verse 38, Stephen returns to his narrative of Moses' life and says, he received living words to pass on to us, but, verse 39, our ancestors refused to obey them. Instead, they rejected him and their hearts turned back to Egypt. Now, at this point, Stephen highlights the repeated rejection of Moses and his words and the Israelites' heart's propensity towards idolatry. He recounts the golden calf episode and goes on to say that such idolatry was a constant in the life of Israel and quotes Amos, where the prophet's words recall idolatry not only in the wilderness, but also once Israel had taken possession of the promised land. If anything, what Stephen is showing here is not simply that true worship is not the special preserve of Jerusalem and the temple, but goes even further, even that the Jewish people have been, if anything, characterized by idolatry. At this point, Stephen rewinds just a little bit and returns to the wilderness, and his focus now is on what the Jews considered the dwelling place of God. So he begins by recounting the history of the tabernacle and goes on to the temple, 
But it's not long before he quotes those verses we had as our call to worship this morning, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. And why does he do that? Well, he makes the point, as he puts it in verse 48, that the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. Again, it's another way in which Stephen seeks to undermine that theological position that God and his activity is constrained to the temple in Jerusalem and to suggest once more that actually maybe the temple wasn't the ultimate fulfillment in terms of where God would dwell with his people. That's basically his speech. And as I've already alluded to, I imagine that many of you like me find verse 51 to come as a bit of a shock I mean, personally, I find it hard to believe that Stephen didn't at least intend to say something more, to, to go on and, and at least say something about Jesus, right? Perhaps how he'd fulfilled the law or was the new temple or something like that. Yet, it's all very sudden. And there's no obvious explanation for why he's so sudden in verse 51. I mean, maybe he was just a bit of a firebrand. He wasn't English, after all. Uh, but... Now, this is pure speculation. I do just wonder if, at that moment, he paused in the narrative. I, I just wonder if he, he paused to get a sense of the room, to, to just see whether his words were gaining any acceptance. And maybe he could just sense the hostility, the hardness of heart. Maybe, maybe the eyes of the priests fixed on him were just so full of hatred or disdain or scorn. And, and maybe it just made him feel so incredulous and not a little angry that they could be so stubborn, so hard of heart at their commitment to rejecting God's truth even when it was presented clearly to them. I don't know. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was something else entirely. But whatever the case, verse 51, Stephen, Stephen suddenly turns up the dial fully and, and calls them stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears and in doing so, brands them with some classic labels that the Lord himself uses in the Old Testament to describe his rebellious people. But Stephen doesn't stop there. He goes further, turns the tables on them. He, who is in the dock, accuses those who are sat in the judge's seat with, in fact, being the ones who are guilty, charging them with always resisting the Holy Spirit with following in the footsteps of their fathers by killing men sent by God to declare his word, both the prophets and most seriously of all, the righteous one, meaning of course Jesus. Verse 53, Stephen finishes his speech by referring to them as you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. And he's clearly recalling verse 38 and 39 where he spoke of the law given at Mount Sinai that was not obeyed by the Israelites. So Stephen is clearly equating Jesus at the very least as a, with a man like Moses. He's no doubt saying he is the promised prophet like Moses that uh, he'd quoted earlier from Deuteronomy. And at this point, well, if earlier their eyes were flashing, now their teeth are gnashing and their fury is at boiling point. If we didn't know any better, we might almost suspect Stephen was kind of goading them because at this point, uh, it's uh, when he's described as full of the Holy Spirit, he's shown a vision of the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And of course, he declares that this is what he can see to the angry mob. They can stand it no longer. They are utterly riled, so much so they cover their ears, they yell at the top of their voices to drown him out. They manhandle him and unceremoniously drag him outside of the city. 
Now, they, they could have stopped there. They could have. But such is their rage that once outside of the city, they stone him until he dies. Despite his lack of resistance, despite his prayers for them, even as they commit the deed, they kill him. It's an extraordinary display of rage and of religious fury. In context, I think we need to understand it as well, from the Sanhedrin's point of view, as the culmination of a series of provocations. You see, think about it from their point of view. Ever since, it was probably several months earlier, maybe a year earlier, they dealt with that irksome preacher, Jesus of Nazareth. They thought they'd got rid of this silly movement that had sprung up, but the movement, ah, oh, it had grown up. It, 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 it hadn't died away like those of other agitators, no. You know, first there'd been those rumors of him being alive, a little while later, there'd been some gathering in Jerusalem and loads of people had started speaking languages that weren't their, their own. That was pretty mysterious. Since then, the movement had proliferated wildly. Thousands had begun joining them. And so, you know, since then, the Sanhedrin, they'd been preached at by the leaders of this group, a couple of uneducated fishermen from upcountry. So they called them in for questioning. They'd forbidden them from preaching anymore, but that had been roundly ignored. So they call them in for questioning again, they flog them, they imprison them. Nothing seems to deter them, it's infuriating. So they're probably getting pretty frantic by this time, trying to work out how on earth they could successfully quash this exceedingly persistent group. And now to cap it all off, this Greek-speaking Jew has the nerve to brand them stiff-necked and disobedient to the law and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Essentially, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. And when we understand that, the stoning starts to make a little more sense, horrific though it undoubtedly was. It also makes sense then of the subsequent persecution that broke out on a widespread scale. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. It can seem pretty bleak. It's not all bleak. The movement is not quashed. The church is not obliterated. Verse 4, chapter 8. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. What a story. And of the many things that could be drawn from it, I want to focus on this enduring truth. That faithful witness leads to opposition, which leads to gospel advance. Faithful witness leads to opposition, which leads to gospel advance. First, faithful witness. That's what Stephen was, right? A faithful witness. In his speech, he'd highlighted how acceptable worship depended on accepting rather than rejecting the man sent from God who was to rule and deliver. Experiencing that deliverance, then submitting to that rule and obeying his words. In Exodus, of course, the man was Moses, but now the prophet like Moses had come, Jesus of Nazareth, and true worship depended on accepting and obeying him. It's what marked him out as a faithful witness. Unlike the members of the Sanhedrin, Stephen had accepted that Jesus was a man sent from God to deliver, and he was now obeying Jesus' words. And thus he was committed to God's word. 
he clearly knew it very well. He recounts loads of Israel's history. He's able to quote Amos and Isaiah. And as part of that commitment to God's word, he's committed to the truth of it. He's no desire to water any of it down, even when it's uncomfortable. And most of all, he was unafraid of witnessing to the saving power and lordship of Christ, even when it brought him opposition, as happened in our story. And that's the thing. Faithful witness does lead to opposition. Jesus promised as such, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, John 15, 18 and 20. Most famously, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And Matthew 10, 17 to 22, Jesus says, Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus lays great emphasis in all those verses on the fact that such opposition directly is related to him. Faithful witness that leads to opposition will always be witness to Christ. Jesus is the factor, if you like, against which op opponents will take such umbrage. And the result is that they will treat such followers similarly to how they treated Jesus. That's why in their letters both Paul and Peter speak of persecution as sharing in Christ's sufferings. Perhaps you notice the way in which Luke brought out the resemblance to Jesus and his sufferings that Stephen experienced. It comes throughout. Even in the opening description, 6 verse 8, that Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power who performed great wonders and signs among the people. I mean, that's a description that wouldn't be inappropriate were it about Jesus. Verse 10, they cannot stand up against his wisdom, just as they'd been able to stand against Jesus' wisdom. Verse 11, they have to gather in secret to cunningly plot his downfall. Verse 12, they stir up the crowd. Verse 13 and 14, they produce false witnesses whose testimonies against Stephen do sound remarkably similar to the false testimonies that Jesus faced at his trial, which also falsely claimed that Jesus was planning to destroy the temple. Even verse 15, where Stephen's face uh, looked like an angel, that could recall Jesus at the transfiguration, where his face shone like the sun. Chapter 7, 51 to 53, Stephen's indictments against the members of the Sanhedrin, they recall Jesus' own words against the Pharisees and Sadducees at various times, where he didn't hold back in condemning their stubbornness and hardness of heart. In verse 58, like Jesus, Stephen was dragged out of the city. Verse 59, just as Jesus had prayed, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit, so too Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just as Jesus had prayed for the forgiveness of those who crucified him, 
so too in verse 60, Stephen prays for the forgiveness of those who are stoning him. Stephen really did, to use the words of Paul in Philippians 3.10, know Christ and know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And that is because faithful witness leads to opposition. So it's important that we ask, what will that look like for us today, living in Gloucester in 2022? When it comes to being a faithful witness, what will it look like? In some ways, there'll be similarities. You know, let us, like Stephen, also, at the very least, accept and believe that Jesus was a man sent from God to rule and deliver. Let us submit to his rule by obeying his words, chiefly, that is, simply to believe and trust in him for salvation. Let us also, like Stephen, be committed to God's word, knowing it both intimately and extensively, confident in its truthfulness, knowing that they are living words, verse 38, words from the living God who never changes. Let us commit not to compromise on God's truth, to water it down. Uh, Let us work through the uncomfortable bits, the bits we find hard to stomach, to more and more align our ways and thoughts and desires with God's. And being a faithful witness will mean ever focusing on Jesus. That as we relay the Christian message to others, especially to outsiders, they will know that it's all about Christ, about who he is and what he's done. As we've already seen, that will engender opposition. So we should expect it. The opposition itself, I guess, is where things are likely to look most different today. It's unlikely that the opposition we might face will come from Jews, generally speaking, or be concerned with the law and the temple and the precise nature of true and acceptable worship. In our culture today, the opposition is far more likely to concern sexual ethics or perhaps pluralism, where people take offense at us claiming that Jesus is the only way. But what both of those have in common with Stephen is that ultimately it all concerns the exclusive claim that Christ is Lord. The reason we hold to traditional orthodox sexual ethics that we do is ultimately because Jesus is Lord and he has upheld and reinforced the Old Testament law on sexual ethics and we follow him. The reason we claim that Jesus is the only way to God and that People of all other religions and of no religion face an eternity in hell unless they come to him in repentance and faith is because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is Lord. He is almighty God. His word is true. Ultimately, it is Christ's lordship to which people object. And so in our discussions with people, let's make sure we focus on that lordship so that they at least have a chance of understanding why we believe what we do and not object to anything less than his claim to be Lord. Something else to note, of course, is that, well, Stephen was a Christian, a member of God's church, whereas the members of the Sanhedrin were Jews outside of the church. And so, too, much of the opposition we face will come from outside of the church. However, seen from another angle, it's worth noting that the members of the Sanhedrin and Stephen they also shared a common heritage. They shared the same scriptures. Ostensibly, at least, they, sh- they worshipped the same God. And so in a not dissimilar way, we should expect some opposition, sadly, to come from those who share the same scriptures as us and who ostensibly worship the same God. Some opposition today will come from those who call themselves Christians. 
it's possible that the opposition from them will be even fiercer than from outside if they feel threatened or undermined, as no doubt the Sanhedrin will have done. The fierceness of the opposition is also somewhere where, at least currently, our situation is different. In this country, at the moment, we are very unlikely to be killed for our faith in Jesus. But increasingly, having an orthodox biblical stance on certain things, such as sexual ethics, will lead even now to societal exclusion, stunted job prospects, at times even dismissal. Increasingly, Christians are at risk of having to go to court for holding to biblical truth. And it doesn't seem wholly unfeasible that in my lifetime, some may be imprisoned for it, especially with the political landscape to shift. It's not impossible and I think ought to be expected. Of course, that doesn't mean we ought to be deliberately awkward and fractious as though looking for opposition in some kind of bizarre sadomasochistic way. No, uh, such behavior would obviously be contrary to the fruit of the Spirit and does little good in the cause of the gospel. But the point is, even the gentlest, kindest, most patient believer should expect that witnessing faithfully to Christ, to his lordship and salvation, may well engender opposition because, as the Apostle John memorably puts it, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Yet, through all this, we're not to worry about or even fear such opposition, scary though the prospect may be, because, well, on a personal level, Peter charges believers in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And an encouragement for us to take from our passage in Acts is that the opposition that follows faithful witness it leads to gospel advance. We, did you notice chapter 8, verse 1, where the believers were initially scattered? End of the verse, throughout Judea and Samaria. That's exactly where Jesus himself had said it would go after Jerusalem. Back in Acts 1, verse 8, immediately prior to his ascension, Jesus told his followers they would be wit his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here we see that begin to be fulfilled as the church in Jerusalem is scattered to all Judea and Samaria. And it is opposition that brought that about. Christ can use anything, even opposition, to bring about his gospel purposes, and specifically the advance of the gospel. Because, as verse 4 of chapter 8 says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Isn't that encouraging? Though they'd been persecuted and scattered, they remained faithful and preached the word about Christ wherever they went. So let that be a great encouragement to us today, that if we remain faithful and that leads to opposition, that is in no way a failure, but is in fact the Lord working out his purposes to bring about gospel advance in the way that he has always done so. As Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world.
You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K. For more, thank you.